This is the Straight Dope, episode 37. This is an extension of the last episode, 36, Observations as an RO from the NRL Hunter. In the last episode, I talked about gear management, data management, target detection, target acquisition, and some positional stuff. So those are things that you're interested in and haven't listened to that episode, that's probably the one that you want to start with. I'm going to pick up after a brief recap on those and keep going down my list on observations as an RO at the NRL Hunter. And afterwards, I'll talk about as a RO competitor uh, the day prior to the event. So what we mentioned before was that gear management, simple, seemed to be best. Data, simple, seemed to be best. Target detection, use the resources that the RO or the match director and the RO provides you to optimize your ability to find the targets and then landmark so that you can get on glass, get on your rifle, and be able to find your targets without having to reacquire them with all your shit. Practice the positions you're going to shoot from. If you don't practice shooting from the types of positions that you're going to be shooting from, and you don't regularly practice stuff like the rifle craft drill, you're going to induce point of impact shifts with your bullet. And because of that, you're going to be losing points that you could have easily got. It doesn't mean you have to do rifle craft. doesn't mean you have to shoot paper. It doesn't mean you have to do anything, really. But watching shooters induce point of impact shifts and scratch their head and keep doing it is a little bit entertaining as an RO, but you can see what's happening while they're doing it. And it just like, it feels bad and kind of hurts. Like, man, a little bit of practice and a little bit of thought and education on paper, maybe a little bit of coaching, and they could have got 20, 30 more points at these events. So I, I really do think that the population of shooters that are competing right now could all be performing at the level of the top 10 with a little coaching and practice. I wholeheartedly believe that. There are some really good shooters, but you don't know that you're inducing point impact shift till you start shooting paper in the positions you'll be shooting from and see what your trends are. And, you know, I mean, you're listening to this because you understand that rifle craft pushes dedicated and consistent paper practice to understand your fundamentals because it's from your fundamental capability that you add everything else like wind call and, 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 and shooting performance. That's stuff that is at a higher level. It all stacks on top of your baseline shooting group size from an unknown position. The hunter matches are awesome because they're all unknown positions, but you have some control over the positions that you build at every stage. And so you could really practice those positions at home understand that you have no point of impact shift, and then you can trust your bullet. Most of the misses that I saw on my stage, and we're, we're talking about hundreds of misses, were on the y-axis, right? They're vertical dispersion in groups, and those vertical dispersion in groups are not uncommon when you get off the ground in unpracticed, untrained, unrehearsed, positions and when you're shooting off rocks and on hills that slope and, and all these weird field positions and you simply just grab a big puffy pillow 
and 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 you don't consider the orientation of your body, the process that goes into building that position to make sure you have a good point of aim, point of impact, it's not uncommon to have vertical dispersion. I saw that consistently, right? We see that all the time, but at this match, it was very much reinforced, and it, it justifies and, and it makes me feel good about offering up that service of the un- unconventional skills assessment where we can actually quantify people's ability to build and break shots to their point of aim and measure that, quantify their ability to, to do everything that's involved in shooting uh, from point A and point of impact to, to reading wind and, and um, knowing how to solve problems, where their strengths and weaknesses are. So then you could take that data and utilize it in your training program. So let's take a second and talk about transitions. A lot of shooters dumped their equipment in one spot, went from that spot to the glassing shooting position, and then went back and forth. And it may have only been three or four feet, but in that three or four feet, time is being wasted. You're getting up, getting down, getting up, getting down, getting up, getting down, going back and forth, shuttling equipment. And when you're doing that, your brain's distracted. And a distracted brain doesn't usually solve problems the most efficiently. So transitions are very important. Transitions are easy to practice. A a lot of the best shooters post videos of themselves doing dry fire practice where they'll build a position, break a position, move to the next one, build a position, break a position, and they practice picking up their rifle, picking up their bag, and moving it. If you can reach all of your equipment from the position that you're in, your transitions are probably going to be smoother. Taking everything that you need with you as you transition is going to save you time and time on these events is important. It wasn't really important on my stage, but for sure there were many stages where time was seriously limited because you had to make a lot of transitions and knowing what you needed to carry with you so that you didn't have to run back or sacrifice stability because you didn't bring something that was capable of stability is very important. Those transitions were, were visibly smooth with the good shooters, and shooters that struggled and got low points often got low points because they were struggling so much in the transitions that they timed out or they didn't get shots off because you know they were spending so much time and they couldn't find the targets and they didn't build their position. They were going back and forth, and they created these giant gypsy camps in this you know 30-square-foot zone we were shooting in, equipment all over the place. And, and that's all stuff that could be practiced prior to coming to the event. Now, when it, when it comes to those shooting and the positions, uh, we got to think about how scoring works. Scoring at these events is pretty straightforward. If you get a first-round impact, you get two points. If you get a second-round impact, you get one point. And, and then you have to, to, to carry on. And so there's, there's the opportunity to get eight points. First round impacts being two makes it very important to get, you know, as many of those as possible if you're going to get high scores. But it's not always possible, uh, for sure. But if, if, if you make a first shot, it, it seems theoretical that a highly skilled shooter could miss all their first shots, right? 
learn from that in terms of wind or, or something and get a seven on every stage. Right? Now, if you look at the points of shooters at these events, they're not doing that. Right? So, so uh, most shooters are missing some shots. And in fact, at most of these events, like the winners are getting like a zero on one stage. or It's not uncommon anyway for winners or people at the top to get a zero on a stage because maybe of timing out or, or doing something and then coming back with a lot of eights and sevens to, to make up for that. But the way these are scored uh, has a lot to do with how, how we think about solving these problems, right? You want to have a good, stable solution. You want to have to understand wind brackets and how to manage wind because you need to be able to manage your wind call from one target to the next or one position to the next. Typically, now it's not always the case, but typically the targets are a little wider than they are tall. And so you need to understand your ability to fundamentally shoot well in the vertical axis as well as the, the horizontal axis because, A, you got to have your bullet land in, the, in between the top and the bottom of the target. But also, you have to be able to, to, to bracket your wind and your shooting ability to optimize the target width. And, and although on my stage I saw the majority of the misses were vertical, the wind wasn't extremely complicated on, on, on my stage. I was in a, in a little valley, and for the most part, even shooters on Saturday that had you know, high teens of wind were missing vertically because the wind was channeled kind of in the axis of the shot. And so uh, there, weren't, there weren't a lot of left and right misses. Um, the, um, the interesting thing to me was that there were a lot of double misses because of vertical dispersion. And so um, I had to give out a lot of sixes and fives and fours and threes and twos and ones and zeros. There weren't a lot of, um, there weren't a lot of sevens and eights. And, and again, I think that comes down to the fundamental stuff. Teams. There were some teams, uh, I think uh, maybe 20 teams or so came through the event, maybe more than 20 teams. <clears throat> and teams get uh, six minutes instead of four. Now, uh, now we shot as a team. And I thought, shoot, when I go as an individual, I'm usually finished with about a minute to spare on most stages. So I thought, shit, you know, with a minute to spare, two of us, we're going to be smoking through these really fast. And that was not the case, at least for, for my team. We were usually maximizing the six minutes because it takes time to talk. It takes time to communicate information and share that information. The best teams communicated exactly what they needed and not anything else. And, and so being able to watch the level of the teams in their communication style. Now, again, I wasn't on a stage where it was difficult to, to, to find or communicate where the targets were. But that didn't matter because good communicators communicated well and poor communicators communicated poorly regardless of their ability to walk each other on you know oh it's up there it's by a rock it's by a bush to the right of the bush it's over there it's up here versus walking somebody on directly communication made a big difference and the teams that communicated the most efficiently scored the best when you looked at the overall score and I, I kept note of what teams communicated well and it basically fell down in the rankings 
in terms of good communicators to poor communicators. So I thought that was really fascinating. If you're thinking about doing this as a team, A, I think it's like the ultimate division because it tests not only your shooting skill, but your ability to work with a partner. I think it adds elements of complexity that you don't get as an individual. It doesn't make the shooting easier. It doesn't make anything easier. What it does is adds to your necessity of understanding the elements that you might be doing reflexively but not really understand, right? Because you have to communicate that stuff efficiently and effectively. For example, if I find my target and I range it, range it, write down my dope, get down, get, make my wing call, shoot, shoot, I could make a correction just simply by watching where the bullet hit, correct that with the reticle, and make an impact. But I'm going to have to, with a team, I'm going to have to be able to communicate it somehow. And you can't always just say, oh, I held four tenths on this and six tenths on that or something like that. Because as the target number increases, you may not be able to communicate your hold if you're shooting a different caliber, a different speed. And that's a lot of information to be able to remember. And I can't even remember which targets I hit usually after the stage because, you know, I'm thinking about other stuff. So reflexively, you know, let's say you go to a PRS match, a shooter may be able to adjust their impact on plate from, you know, left to center or a miss to center. And they're just doing it simply by saying their eye saw where the bullet went and then they moved that impact into the area that they want the bullet to go and it goes there. But being able to calculate the difference in elevation, the difference in wind, the difference in all of those subtleties to an actionable message to a second human being requires some sort of dialogue that's understandable. And you can see that breakdown or work. So you could say, okay, well, you know, I'm going to start with when we shot, it was in the 30 mile an hour winds and then it was coming from different angles. So sometimes it was nine o'clock, sometimes it was seven o'clock. And so we were always breaking it down into full full value nine o'clock wind. And, and, and some of that, um, you know, the, the language that we were using that was effective, at least the one that, that I feel better using was ratios of the distance, right? So if, if, if I have a seven mile an hour gun, then if I'm shooting 700 yards in seven miles an hour, it's going to be 0.7, right? So, uh, at, at 28 miles an hour, it's going to be 2.8 mils. And, and we were shooting in 28 to 36 mile an hour wind. So we were using, using huge wind holds, but communicating the wind speed allowed us to think in terms of fractions of distance and communicate that pretty well. But, but that worked for us and, and, and for other teams, being able to communicate in a common language was essential. And a lot of teams timed out simply because they couldn't communicate back and forth effectively about, you know, they might, they might find the targets in 30 seconds and then spend the next minute trying to walk on their partner or build a position or go back and forth and getting in each other's way. And so it, it was really cool to watch and it was really cool to do. I think that the team version is, is where it's at in terms of a challenge. Now, if you're just going for a trophy, it's not the way to go because uh, I think that they only give trophies for first place, not second and third. Same with youth. I think, uh, at least at this event, there was a first place trophy for team, youth, lady. And then all the divisions had three. I think maybe sometimes they have up to five. Um, 
places. So if you're if you're going for a trophy and and that's it, you're probably better off going with factory light or heavy. And I, I don't think that with those rifles there's a benefit or an advantage or disadvantage. Like I literally think they all shoot the same. So they're it it just kind of um I think that's silly because I, I don't shoot my light rifle any worse than I shoot my heavy rifle. And I don't own a factory rifle, but but I can't imagine that I can't shoot a factory rifle as well as a heavier light rifle at these events, I think. Um, but if you're going for a trophy and you're a lady, a youth, or a team, then in order to get one, you got to win it. So you got much more probability if you go to the other divisions. But otherwise, like in terms of skill, the skill communication and relay, and it's fun to hang out with somebody for the day um, or for two days. And uh, I think it's really cool. And it's something that I'm going to continue to pursue just because the skill level is higher and it allows you, it tests you in ways that require fluency and not just kind of reactivity. So to me, I, you know, that's a part of shooting that is important and it can't be overlooked. And while you can perform well at events like PRS or, or NRL precision type stuff, just being reactive and making a fast correction, that doesn't necessarily mean that that person's operating as fluidly and fluently as, as you might expect, because it's just testing one dimension of a bigger skill set, whereas working with a team is, tenching, is testing more dimensions of those skill sets, and you still have to be able to do that to perform well. I think that's pretty cool. I think that's um, something that I would encourage people to do if they're interested in it. To me, it's kind of the ultimate division. ROs. The ROs at these events uh, shoot the day prior to the event. So if it's a Saturday-Sunday competition, it's a, it's a Friday shoot, and you shoot all the stages. This particular event was 19 stages. So when we showed up Friday morning... Uh, we got our brief, we did our shooting, we got our chronograph, our weigh-in, all that stuff, and then we went out and we shot 1 through 19 straight through. That is super fun. I like to shoot, and I don't like to shoot part of a day <clears throat> and then just kind of pick my nose for the evening. Um, I came to shoot, and I want to shoot all day. And I think it's, um, shit, we even did it. And on some stages, just for shits afterwards, you know, try to hit the targets offhand and kept screwing around. Just like I was talking about on a previous podcast. Like, man, we came there to shoot and have fun. And it doesn't end on the stage, right? So being able to shoot all day is pretty badass. Like, it would be sick to be able to do 19 stages three days in a row. Uh, it's fun. It's informative. And, and it's what we came there to do. Now, I get it. Like, some people came to socialize and they want to shoot half the day and then socialize the second half of the day and do that two days in a row. It would be pretty cool to be able to do all three days, like the RO shoot and then shoot Saturday, Sunday as well, although then you would miss being an RO, which is, is pretty cool and fun to be able to do. Um, I think that there are ways that maybe you could capitalize on um, – bringing in more shooters and having more people shoot more days if there was a way to do like the Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you know, maybe you just paid two entry fees or I don't know what, um, but it was pretty badass and it was super fun. Now, in terms of, um, <clears throat> you know, so last year I remember the ROs, uh, it was like a snowstorm and super windy. I wasn't an RO last year and, and um, you know, it was raining and snowing and super windy, and I had heard, wow, that, like it was heinous conditions. But then I shot the match. But, but 
my day I, I broke my rangefinder, so I was kind of bummed out about that. And you know, I kind of wrote off the match because I shoot, you know, without a rangefinder. So um, this year, shooting as an RO was also an, another crazy experience because we had massive winds, and then you spent Saturday, Sunday, kind of watching the winds just slowly to turn to nothing. Um, and, and I guess that that's just kind of luck of the draw, but my guess is down the road that, that the RO division will have to be split into a completely different division than the competitive one, because if there were more competitive people, um, in those pools and if it was the other way around, like this is where I see the problem is if we had no wind on Friday and then lots of wind Saturday and Sunday and all the ROs won all the divisions, uh, it would immediately stop as as part of the event process, right? That, that that's the way I, I imagine it. You know, people would complain to the point where you wouldn't be able to do that because all the paying competitors got totally screwed by the people that came to RO because there was no win. Now this was the opposite of that. So nobody nobody cared, right? But um if it went the other way around, my guess is there would be a lot of complaints. And, and they would have to split them into the division. So as, as somebody that's, you know, kind of trying to think ahead of what's happening is, is if you made just a separate category of ROs, then it, then it wouldn't be an issue because ROs wouldn't be competing against the other folks in conditions that may or may not be equivalent. And the, the equivalency of conditions has always been a big factor in shooting competitions. I mean, even to the point where on two-day national matches, if, if squad one you know, shot a certain stage in different conditions than squad four, you know, everybody kind of makes excuses and, and um, bitches about how the wind was different, you know, for them and then from everybody else. And, and they kind of roll their eyes if, if somebody that's not as good did better than they did because of the conditions. Um, and, and, and in this sense, it could be eliminated in, and, and fixed if it was just made into another uh, category, but but I'm just kind of waxing and waning about that. I do think that um, when it comes to the gaming aspects of all these competitions, you can't really get away from it because people are spending a lot of money to go test themselves and have fun, but there were quite a few skills division people, and the skills division people are basically the folks that say, you know, screw the gaming mentality. We just came to shoot, so they pay, and they, they pay to not be ranked in compared to other shooters, which I think is badass because there's definitely people that say, why would you go to a match and not want to be measured and compare yourself to other people? And I think that's ridiculous. Of course I'd go to a match and not give a fuck about who I was being compared to because I, I like to test stuff out. And we, I saw guys with gas guns. I saw guys with rifles that they built themselves. Um, guys shooting offhand. Guys shooting like with no rear bag. Uh, w without a range finder, like there were people out there just living it up and having a good time. Somebody, uh, I mean, there, there was a lot of what I thought was crazy, awesome stuff happening with the skill shooters. And there was a lot of skill shooters out there just having fun and kind of celebrating that they like to shoot in their own way. And, and no, they're not competitive, but I don't think that they really seem to care. It was, um, it was very, very interesting to watch the skills people come up because many of them were shooting and doing things that if you were competitive, you probably wouldn't have the nerve to do. And I think that's exciting. So trying to come up with ways to try to be competitive, doing some of the things that I saw the skills people doing. Um, and that's hard because you always kind of want to measure something 
I mean, even if it's just for yourself, but, but without a baseline, it's hard to come up with ways that you might track, you know, if, if, if you shoot everything offhand, like, well, I don't, I don't really know, uh, you know, at this point, right. What the, the, the 80, I, I talked about the 85% rule for optimal learning and the paper uh, from nature that came out about that. And like, you know, you're trying to balance that 85% success rate to drive the neurochemicals and the psychological balance for optimal learning, learning and growth. Cause we're all trying to learn, right? So, um, you know, where is your performance such that you're going to be performing at 85%? Well, shit, a lot of shooters, they're, they're, they're not anywhere close to 85% success rate anyway. So then giving them more of a, a disadvantage isn't the way to go. So finding that 85% success in areas that you struggle at, you have to have your base higher than 85%, right? But if you're shooting higher than 85%, and, and I feel like and most of the things that I do right now, I'm shooting around 90%. And so if trying to find ways to take away equipment or add challenges by slowing down bullets, having heavier recoiling rifles, uh, the 85% balance is something that really drives my thought process as to what I'm going to try next. And that's evolved over the last few years, having tried some things that were ridiculous and I was having 50% success rate. And my enthusiasm for testing that stuff was slowly plummeting because uh, I was I was testing things that were well beyond my limit of maintaining a certain amount of success. And that showed, but I, I fortunately figured that out before I got totally burnt out. But I had some really dismal matches where my hit percentage was like 50%, but I was shooting setups and speeds and bullets and calibers that just, there was no actual way, even if you did things right to come anywhere near 85%, even if it was flawless. And, and I just didn't realize that at the time. So I would say that if you're going to try something unusual, try to make sure that you're still in that 85% success rate. Now the 85% success rate doesn't necessarily mean 85% hit rate, although that's the way I track my stuff, it, it could be measured with other variables, but you kind of need that balance for the dopamine uh, release and then um, the right balance of dopamine, serotonin, and, and uh, psychological factors that go into keeping you motivated and rewiring your brain for the new skills that you're developing. Uh, let's see. Other side notes are that it was because we were in extreme winds, we personally experienced a ton of dust in our eyes and mouth and ears and nose. And, um, I tend to like shoot with my mouth open and there was sand in my mouth and dust. And, and although that's just kind of a hassle, uh, wearing eye protection in, in those cases could save you from getting sand and dust in your eyes, which, really could take you out of the game, but also bringing maybe eye wash or rinse in the event that something gets in your eye and you need to rinse it out because that could also stop your day. That, this was the kind of the first circumstance where I felt like that needed to be added to the pack and accessed quickly. Um, the other thing was in that kind of wind, I, I feel like I'm good at shooting on a tripod, but there was no way to be as stable as I wanted to be. There was no way to be stable like I was used to. Like e even under the, uh, you know, if, 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 if we go shooting and the wind is under 15, I, I feel like I don't have any wobble positionally off my tripod. But on Friday, 
I feel like the least amount of wobble that I had being blown around and jostled by the wind was about four tenths left and right, maybe even half a mil left and right wobble because the wind was blowing my rifle and me around. There was no way to stabilize that better. And so coming up with ways to improve that stability factor in those kind of conditions, which is pretty amazing, right? Like you want to try to find conditions that test you at the extremes. And, and it was really weird to have wobble that I was unfamiliar with because of the um, wobble. Now, I mentioned a lot that people were missing up and down because of what I attribute as point of impact shifts because of unstable, unrehearsed, unpracticed, and, and uncoached shooting positions. We also saw aerodynamic jump. Now, that's plugged into a Kestrel, and most of our data was validated off of a Kestrel, and we produced our hard data cards with wind speeds in mind, and we got a lot of first-round impacts, and that added two or three-tenths of elevation. Uh, and so aerodynamic jump was confirmed here, basically, because the targets were about the size of the aerodynamic jump, and we were getting impacts using the data provided by Kestrel with the 30-mile-an-hour crosswinds at these distances. So if your data doesn't consider strong winds and the influence, the subtle influences up and down, I think that you'll have a lower hit percentage based on that, even if you do take a good shot. So if you do make your hard data cards, make sure that you make multiple sets with the forecasted weather. Now, we didn't know if it was going to be coming from three or nine. So we made sets for three and nine, but we made, I made wind cards up to 40 miles an hour and <clears throat> we used those. And you could see when you compared the elevation at some of the distances, you know, past four or 500 yards, that the elevation shifted and we were able to juggle those and get impacts on targets, uh, not missing up and down. Because I know on, on my team, when we shot through, our misses were wind not vertical. So uh, that was different than my observations of shooters on my stage for us because we had such extreme kind of left and right uh, wind shifts. I think the lowest wind, full value crosswind that we shot in was maybe 14, uh, 14 miles an hour to 36 miles an hour from nine o'clock. So it was big, big jumps in wind and being able to adjust the crosswind elevation uh, allowed us to get impacts on plates when our wind call was good and being able to make follow-up corrections when the wind was off and get second round impacts means that our elevation vertical data was solid. Both of us shot factory ammo, so we didn't need anything fancy in that department. Right? We both shot proof research carbon barrels and factory ammo, and uh, it, was, it, was, it was good. Now, we didn't win the team division, uh, the, the team that won beat us by three points, but we're still pretty proud of ourselves for shooting in those conditions and being able to manage our data and communicate. Having never shot together as a team, uh, we learned a lot, and hopefully we can come back stronger and perform you know, equivalently or better down the road having learned from this. So uh, those are some observations of the Hunter matches. So these two episodes kind of go together, and it's just... Um, 
you know, my observations, kind of getting them out there so that you could see what it's like from an RO to watch people shoot. I'm going to make a third episode talking about our specific shooting and the circumstances, equipment, and techniques that we use to get our successes as a team. And, you know, we shot decently. Uh, I've never shot in wins like that. So we learned a lot. We applied a lot of cool stuff. And so that's going to be lessons learned as an actual shooter rather than an RO. And that's going to be coming up next. So um, till next time.